and uh, welcome to BPB's case recording for um, uh, January 2021. Uh, I'm joined by Grace Nichols. Um, my name is Karen Moss, and uh, we're going to be dealing with two cases that were um, uh, in the EAT and the High Court, respectively, in um, December 2020. Uh, I'm going to be dealing with Quilter, Private Clients, Advisors and Fulcrum and Continuum Financial Services, LLP, which uh, was in the Queen's Bench uh, Division before uh, Mr Justice Calver. And uh, Grace is going to be dealing with Steer and Stormshore Limited, um, which was in the EAT. And what was the case of Faulkner about? Well, um, Ms Faulkner was a um, regulated financial advisor. Um, she specialised in high net worth individuals um, and business owners. She started to work for the um, applicant in this case, who was uh, Quilter Private Client Advisors, um, in January of 2019. And in short, she didn't like it. She was only there for six months. Um, she resigned with two weeks notice because she was within her probationary period. She was unhappy really with three things. First of all, she said the level of administrative support was insufficient. She was also unhappy that there were restrictions on the products that she could recommend to her clients. Um, and thirdly, it was found that she wasn't getting on with her manager. Um, shortly after her resignation, she began working for a competitor of Quilter um, Continuum. So that was the co-defendant in this case. Um, her contract of employment had um, a, a, well, a number of post-employment restrictions. Um, and I'm going to read the three most uh, relevant words in relation to those three covenants. The first was a non-compete non clause, a non-competition covenant. Um, and, and that is for nine months following termination and in competition with the company, and she was prevented from being employed or engaged in, um, assisted or, or interested in any undertaking which provides the, the, the similar services to um, uh, Quilter. Uh, the second clause was a non-solicitation clause and that prevented her for 12 months following termination um, and in competition with the company, um, soliciting or otherwise endeavouring to entice away from the company, the business or customer of any customer in relation to the supply of services. And then finally, there was a non-dealing covenant as well. Um, for 12 months following termination and in competition with the company, the, uh, she was prevented from being concerned with the supply of certain services to any customer. Now, the contract did define um, customer as any person, film, com uh, firm, company or entity in respect of which terms and conditions of business for the provision of financial advisory services have been in place between that person, firm, company or entity and the company during the 18 month period prior to termination uh, and in respect of which the employee was materially concerned or had material personal contact at any time during such 18 month period prior to termination. And then also services was uh, defined in the contract as meaning those parts of the business of, of the company uh, um, with which the employee was materially concerned at the time during the 12 months prior to termination. Um, so 
those were the particular clauses and um in fact what happened just before she left um miss falconer scanned uh, naughtily a substantial amount of uh, quilter's client documentation onto her personal laptop and um, just before she trotted off to their competitor um although quilter knew within a week or two that she had gone to continuum and um, they waited a four and a half month period before they applied for injunctive relief um i, I don't know about you but i have experience of people just waiting far too long um, to apply for injunctive relief and I think this is probably normally because they're nervous about the costs and they might as well just wait and see what happens but um, in this case um, that wasn't a good decision but anyway um, the witnesses for Quilter um, uh, can, uh, conceded that they weren't too concerned about um, the fact that Miss Falconer was working for a competitor, but they were concerned about solicitation, which explained some of the delay. Um, and she claimed, just like so many claimants claim, um, constructive dismissal in defence of the uh, application for an injunction. Um, in very broad terms, it came before uh, Mr. Justice um, Calver uh, in the Queen's Bench Division, and as it, uh, what he decided is that the nine-month non-compete covenant was an illegal restraint of trade and therefore void. And Karen, why was the non-compete non clause not upheld? Well, for a number of reasons. Um, he, Mr Justice Calver did find that Miss um, Falconer had uh, breached her contract. She breached the terms of fidelity and confidentiality. Um, he also found that um, the uh, legitimate business interests cited by Quilter were uh, requiring of protection, uh, that is a special trade connection and business secrets. But Mr Justice Galva found that the covenants were too wide and reasonably necessary for the protection of those interests and so uh, did not uphold the, the non-compete clause. He gave 10 um, pointers, I think, in his judgment. And in my view, these 10 points will be really helpful to um, practitioners. Most of them will be familiar, but it's a kind of useful checklist, particularly when considering what evidence to uh, tell the clients to look for or adduce in their witness statements attached to any application for injunctive relief. So number one was that Quilter um, had failed to adduce much evidence at all about the necessity of the non-compete clauses, and that was a, an error. Um, and it, it, sometimes it can be quite difficult. You really need to consider why a particular clause or um, particular restriction is necessary. Secondly, Miss Falconer in this case was able to go um lawfully to, well she was able to terminate her contract lawfully with only two week notice period and uh, because she was within her um, probationary period and what that suggested was that she was less important to the company than those with much higher uh, much longer um, notice periods and um, in turn that meant that the perceived need for protection was diminished 
Thirdly, the length of restriction was the same during the probationary period, even though Ms Faulkner would obviously have only had six months or up to six months um, to build any kind of relationship. And the, the evidence that was adduced, um, essentially by both sides, suggested that such a relationship would take about a year to build. So why does Quilter need a protection where theoretically anyway nobody in their probationary period would have been able to really build up a relationship that was worth um, protecting. Fourthly, and this is kind of related really to the first one, um, there was no or very little evidence about why Quilter needed a restriction for as long as nine months. Again, it just um, well, there, there just wasn't much evidence in relation to that. Um, fifthly, and interestingly, employees more senior to Ms Faulkner um, with Quilter had the same or less onerous um, restrictions than she did. And again, there's an implication there that the um, restrictions for more junior employees like Ms Faulkner um, were wider than reasonably necessary. Sixthly, um, it was found that Quilter's legitimate business interests would have been adequately protected by a non-dealing clause and that was appropriately worded, um, just so that that could cover um, the uh, Quilter's own customers and uh, didn't go any wider than that. The non-compete clause um, would have prevented uh, Ms Falconer from working with new clients that had nothing to do with Quilter and therefore it was wider than reasonably necessary. Um, there is also usually an argument, I've run it many times, that non-dealing covenants are difficult to enforce and that's why you need a non-compete clause. Um, but in this case, again, there was just no evidence about why it was difficult to enforce a non-dealing clause. Normally, it is said that it's difficult to identify clients with whom the um, defendant has had um, contact during their employment um, and therefore they're difficult to enforce. In this particular case, Ms Faulkner's um, uh, case, it was easy to identify clients that she dealt with during her employment with Quilter. So the judge found that well, that excuse really wasn't open to Quilter. Um, there was a carve out, a geographical carve out, um, but Quilter was a nationwide business. So although the carve out looks like it restricts or limits the uh, effect of the restriction on Miss um, Quilter, in fact, it really didn't have any pra practical effect at all. Eight, um, there was uh, no evidence of an industry standard in this case. Again, some industries do have standards in relation to uh, non-compete clauses. Um, and uh, if there was such a standard in, in this um, sector, there, there was no evidence of it. Finally, as I said before, the witnesses for Quilter said that they were not too concerned about um, the fact that she had gone to work for a competitor, but they were concerned about solicitation. That really, I think, um, meant that the court was bound to find that the non-compete clause was wider than necessary, because even Quilter's witnesses suggested that it, it was. Um, and then finally, there was a significant delay here, um, four and a half months um, after the uh, breach occurred, the judge was left thinking, why did Quilter wait so long to apply? Was there anything else about the judgment you found particularly interesting? 
there was space. I'm glad you asked. Um, there was the public interest in this case um, uh, became uh, interesting because Quilter um, had a regulatory obligation to act in the best interests of its clients. What um, was argued for Ms Faulkner is that the non-competition or non-dealing uh, clauses acted as a fetter on the client's ability to instruct the advisor of their choice. And what was argued is that, um, that because it wasn't in the client's best interests, it was arguably a breach of Quilter's regulatory obligations to enforce these covenants against this uh, uh, Falconer. To the extent that there was conflict uh, between a firm seeking to enforce one of these covenants and the interests of the client, and um, that conflict must be resolved in favour of the, cl the client, it was argued. Well, um, Mr Justice Calver wasn't entirely convinced by that argument in relation to uh, public interest, but he did um, say the following, I'm going to read out part of his um, judgment. He says, it was necessary to balance the public interest in the protection of the goodwill in terms of connect, uh, customer connections and the trade secrets of businesses of this type against the public policy that financial services advisors should be free to act in the best interests of the client by, in particular, being able to join a competitor who offers the client a market-wide offering of financial products rather than being forced to remain at a current employer who only offers um, those clients a restricted in-house offering of financial products. But if the restrictions are found to be reasonable as between the parties by reference to the first of these considerations, then it is likely in my judgment that it will outweigh the latter consideration. After all, the client can always choose to engage a different financial services provider who does offer a full market service regardless of the position of the individual financial advisor. So um, there, there was no full argument on that point because um, uh, Mr Justice Calver left the point open. It's still an argument that I think can be put in an appropriate case. And of course, it goes way beyond um, regulated um, services, certainly financial um, um, services. Um, it could be applicable in many, many cases where there's arguably a conflict between a firm wanting to enforce a covenant and the client's best interest. So that is an argument that um, may well be put again in the, in the future, I think. And what about the other restrictive covenants you mentioned, so the non-solicitation and the non-dealing clauses, what happened to those? Well, they weren't upheld either, um, but uh, for more straightforward reasons really. Um, there was, if you'll remember, when I, uh, when I read out the definition of customer, it included an 18 month backstop that is um, so for customers that uh, Miss Faulkner uh, had dealt with for the last 18 months she was only employed for six months but backstop was 18 months and Mr Justice Calvert simply found that was too wide what he considered which seems to me to be reasonable was that any customer connection that was under threat at the point 18 months before termination had essentially probably gone stale by the time the um, defendant would be leaving her employment. And you said in your article um, in the newsletter that there was an interesting point about affirmation. I um, wonder if you can briefly take us through that. 
Yes. So as I said at the beginning, um, Miss Ducker um, argued that she had been constructively dismissed. So she said that was one of the reasons why the restrictive covenants couldn't be enforced. And in fact, the um, the High Court found that um, she hadn't been constructively dismissed because there wasn't a repudiatory breach. But the point about affirmation was interesting because in the um, civil court jurisdiction rather than the employment tribunal jurisdiction, um, in order to prove a constructive dismissal, one is normally expected to resign without notice. Employment lawyers will know that it doesn't matter whether you resign with notice or without notice for the purposes of constructive unfair dismissal case um, under Section 95 of the Employment Rights Act. But in um, a wrongful dismissal case, it does make a difference. And essentially, you must resign without notice um, if you don't want to risk um, having or being considered as having affirmed the contract. Um, and that's the principle that was cited and considered by uh, Mr. Justice Calver um, from Cochrane and Air Products PLC, which is back in 2014. What was interesting is that Mr. Justice Calver stated that he would not, so if there had been a repudiatory breach, um, he would not have found that the two-week notice period um, meant that um, Ms. Falconer had affirmed her contract. And what he said, I'm going to quote again, if I may, from um, the judgment, he said, it is undoubtedly the case that if the employee decides to accept the repudiatory breach, he must do so unambiguously and with sufficient dispatch. If his purported acceptance is delayed, he runs the risk of a court finding that his action has not been sufficient to discharge his, the contract. However, in my judgment, it is what happens during the delay, which is the critical feature. Provided the employee makes unambiguously clear his objection to what has been done by the employer, he is not necessarily taken to have affirmed the contract by giving a short period of notice and continuing to work and draw pay for a limited period of time. To this extent, I would respectfully disagree with the observation of Ms. Justice Simler that at common law, uh, an employee wishing to resign and successfully claim constructive dismissal would necessarily have to resign without notice. That's the reference to Cochrane. It all depends upon the facts of the particular case, um, whether the employee has nonetheless unambiguously accepted the repudiation of the employer and with sufficient dispatch. Um, the length and circumstances of the delay require to be examined in each case. So um, that is interesting because previously it was thought that any period of notice meant that um, the contract had been affirmed, whereas that has been at least questioned by um, Mr. Justice Calver in this case. Elsewhere and um, Falconer is an interesting one. It's another good example of a, I think, a well-reasoned um, judgment, which I think will help practitioners when dealing with either drafting the restrictive covenants in the first place, um, and also preparing or def defending um, an application um, for an interim injunction. Quilter and Falconer really provides um, a good reminder for practitioners um, to adduce evidence um, that the covenants that are included in their contracts um, are reasonably necessary for the protection of their um, legitimate business interests. Um, 
Grace, you're going to talk to us about Steer and Stormshaw Limited in the Employment Appeal Tribunal. I am. Thanks for that summary, Karen. That was really interesting. So Steer and Stormshaw is a case involving an individual who was employed by the respondent from the 12th of March 2020 until the 15th of July, so a mere matter of months. And the claims in this case um, contended that she was subjected to sexual harassment consisting of inappropriate conduct related to her sex from a fellow employee. And she said that the respondent had failed adequately to protect her from such harassment. In June, so a few months into her employment, she presented a grievance, which she contended was not adequately investigated by the respondent. Um, as she also requested to work from home which she said was a uh, protection to safeguard herself from unwanted harassment. She eventually was permitted to work from home, but once at home, she was instructed by her employer to install um, something called screenshot monitoring software, which she said was effectively an attack on her integrity. And um, as the judgment sets out, an unjustified intrusion into her private life. The claimant alleged that she was notified in mid-July that her working hours be reduced to some 60% with effect from the week, the week after, and um, apparently because of childcare responsibilities. Now, the claimant said that such a unilateral change amounted to an express dismissal, and in the alternative, she said that she'd been constructively dismissed. She contended that her dismissal had amounted to sex discrimination and victimization. And um, essentially also she uh, pleaded her case in the alternative that she'd been dismissed of making a protected disclosure um, and therefore had been automatically unfairly dismissed contrary to section 183A of the Employment Rights Act. The claimant presented claims on the 30th of July of last year and sought interim relief, both in relation to her whistleblowing claims and her sex discrimination and victimization claims. And what did the Employment Tribunal say in relation to interim relief? So before it even got to a hearing, um, the Tribunal wrote to the claimant and, and listed an interim relief hearing only in respect of her whistleblowing claims. Um, and when the claimant sought reconsideration of the decision to list for whistleblowing only, the Tribunal wrote back to the claimant and said it didn't have jurisdiction to grant interim relief in relation to discrimination matters. In advance of the interim relief hearing, um, the claimant decided to appeal the decision to the EAT. Um, and of course, the employment tribunal hadn't heard full argument at this point. Um, and there was some contention within the judgment about whether this had been the appropriate step, because of course, one would assume that a decision on appeal should be a fully reasoned decision from the tribunal. But Mr Justice Kavanagh um, in the EAT remarked that it was appropriate to grant permission, um, given that the appeal was concerned with such a specific and pure point of law and clearly of quite significant public importance. So what did the claimant argue before the Employment Appeal Tribunal? So it's right to say the claimant accepted on, on the face of it that there was no such right for interim relief under the Equality Act 2010. Um, and it's also right to say that the claimant had the support of the Equality and Human Rights Commission um, when she was before the EAT. Um, the claimant sought to read in a right to the Equality Act um, that, uh, and essentially that the right to, for interim relief was required by law or by the European Convention on Human Rights. And there were three principles of EU law that were relied upon by the claimant, namely the principle of effectiveness, the prim principle of equivalence, and the fund and generically fundamental principles of EU law. 
And what about the intervention from the ECHR? There was more success on this argument. So the argument being advanced here was that the failure to grant a right to claim interim relief in dismissals rooted in discrimination victimisation had infringed Article 14 of the ECHR. The EAT found that Article 14, namely the protection from discrimination, was engaged because of the interplay with Article 6, which of course is the right to a fair trial. The EAT considered that difference in treatment in Section 103A claims and discrimination cases hadn't been justified and that no legitimate aim had been advanced. It's right to say that the respondent, so the claimant's former employer, um, was present before the EAT, but quite fairly said or could not explain why difference in treatment existed. It was a private company. Um, permission, when permission had been given to appeal to the EAT, um, it's right to say that apparently the government legal department had been written to, been notified about the appeal and had been given the opportunity to be represented or provide written submissions for the hearing, but it had not done so. As I understand from the judgment, um, there had been some communication, but for whatever reason, no written submissions were provided and, and council wasn't there representing the GLD um, at the EAT. So what did the EAT determine? Mr Justice Kavanagh said it would be inappropriate for him to speculate about whether, and if so, why there was a difference in treatment and whether that was a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim because the burden was on the employer to justify the difference and it was unable to do so. And by that, of course, I mean Stormshaw. And in fairness, uh, that was through no fault of their own. The EAT concluded that there had been a breach of Article 14 of the ECHR but the EAT was in some difficulty because it had no power to make the requisite declaration of incompatibility. And it would be wrong, again, for the EAT to adopt a conforming interpretation of the Equality Act to enable it to read in a right to apply for interim relief. No relief for the breach was able to be granted by the EAT. So Mr Justice Kavanagh gave leave to appeal to the Court of Appeal so that the Court of Appeal could consider whether to grant a declaration of incompatibility for breach of Article 14. It will be really interesting to see where this case up and if and when it reaches the Court of Appeal. Um, and as was noted by Mr Justice Kavanagh in his decision, it was a surprising feature of the challenge that there had been no similar challenge previously brought given that the Equality Act has been in force for over 10 years now. So that was the case of Stirrings Dormshaw. Um, thank you very much um, to Karen um, for her roundup of her case as well. And thank you all for watching. And please look out for future editions of our newsletter, webinars and podcasts in the Employment Group. Thanks.